Welcome to the Reconciliation Conversation. We want this podcast to be a space where we can expose hate, encourage love, equip for healthy reconciliation, and emphasize unity so that all people can know their value together as one. Welcome to another episode of the Reconciliation Conversation. We're thankful that you've joined us today. I'm excited for for our guest today. We actually have the opportunity to join us today in the conversation, former Governor Jeb Bush, the 43rd governor of the state of Florida. Uh, He served from 99 to 2007. He was actually the third Republican uh, elected to the state's highest office there and the first Republican in the state's history to be reelected. During his two terms, Governor Bush championed major reform of government in areas ranging from healthcare and environmental protection uh, to civil service and tax reform. His top priority, though, uh, was to overhaul the state's educational system. Today, Florida actually remains a, a national leader in education and is one of the only states in the nation to significantly narrow the achievement gap. Governor Bush maintains his passion for improving the quality of education for students across the country by serving as the chairman of the Foundation for Excellence in Education, a national nonprofit education reform organization that he founded uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later. And he founded that to transform education here in America. He is currently uh, living in Miami uh, with his wife, uh, Columba. And we actually were talking earlier uh, today. He's uh, celebrating the the birth of another grandchild. So we're excited that he decided to join us in on the, the reconciliation conversation today. Governor Bush, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic, Derek. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. Jason, nice, yeah. nice meeting you as well. Yes, sir. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, well, just to begin, Governor, we'll, we'll jump in um, just to gain some, some context here. And since what we do here is called the reconciliation conversation, how important would you say is one's educational approach to creating opportunities for reconciliation and and reimagine 21st century American future together? Well, the world we're moving towards requires skills that weren't necessary just 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet our education system was designed basically in the early 20th century. It has an agricultural calendar and an industrial model, neither one of which is relevant for this incredibly diverse group of uh, students that for our for our country to go f- move forward, we have to make sure that every child uh, has a fighting chance. And uh, the building blocks start with how you read. Yeah, Kids can't read by the end of third grade, the gaps will grow and grow and grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it goes beyond that to having high expectations for every kid. So if you start with the premise, and I hope you all appreciate this, that, that every child is a gift from God, mm-hmm. which I believe, then it's up to us to organize ourselves through this, the, you know, the so-called education system to make sure that every child reaches their God-given potential. We don't do that. We truly do not do that. Yeah. You know, in 1998, I was a candidate. I went to visit, gosh, 250 schools. I had, I had pretty provocative views when I ran, and I wanted people to know that I had a heart for, for this. It wasn't some kind of political game. I truly believed that we needed to transform our education. So I went in the lion's den. 250 times. People, people were a little anxious to see me, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget, I was, uh, was in a back, back of the high school room. It was a computer lab. Back when the computers were like, the screens were this big and they, yep. they were green, you know, like yep. long chain kind of big. Yep. And this kid, his name was Santiago, and he was studying for what was an eighth grade level test to graduate from high school. Many states in the country didn't have graduation tests. 
ours, we were so proud of it. We had one. It was an eighth grade level test, graduate from 12th grade. And the question was, a baseball game starts at 3, it ends at 4.30. How long is the game? Hmm. Now, this kid was taking his final, it was his final chance the next day to, to pass that test so he could graduate. And he couldn't answer that question. Hmm. So what in the world are we doing? Yeah. How are we going to have, how are we going to find common ground when we have young people that don't even get the first step of a quality education. Now, that's improved in Florida and other places in our country, but we still have a long way to go. So I'm passionate about this. And I think the two things that really are the catalyst, there's many other things that need to be done. You need to empower parents to make choices. They need to be informed consumers. They have to have information. I like that. Having them having a say is not just empowering for empowerment's sake. It also engages them in their child's education. And it makes the public schools that traditionally are assigned kids more responsive to the, to the needs of particularly of low income families. Mm. And you have to have accountability. If you don't measure, you really don't care and you can excuse away. I mean, now we're in this period of tremendous strife in our country of privilege versus people, you know, not accessing opportunity. And this is the time to have a conversation. Or why is it that we have a K-12 system particularly mm -hmm. where you have haves and you have have nots? Yeah. Uh, so accountability, particularly for students that are um, struggling, particularly low-income kids, is essential. But those are the two pillars, choice for parents and accountability. And in Florida, we've embraced that with a passion and had some pretty good results. That's good. That's good. We appreciate your answer on that, Governor. Yeah, no doubt about it. And And you hit it right there, talking about accountability. I mean, I know whether it's reconciliation or education and many other things, you know, staying local focused, staying state and local focused has been a passion of yours. And, and we, I, we agree. I, I think anything that's going to really have a cultural shift or effect has to have that grassroots element. It can't just be handed down. And, and so what, what's been rewarding, but what's also been difficult as you've worked with policymakers, lawmakers, teachers on that local and state level, it, because if that's really where the battle is, right, we've got to give energy to it. What's been great and what's been tough about that? Well, the hyper um, partisanship, hyper politicization of, of things now, it's kind of creeped little by little more and more into policy world is basically frozen. There's, there hasn't been the kind of momentum that I had hoped, say, a decade ago, because education has been put into the, to the, uh, the hyper-partisan meat grinder. That's a problem. Um, yeah, I think education should be a national effort. It should be a national calling. It should be a national priority, but it needs to be delivered locally. It can't be, you can't, there's no one size fits all in America. <laughs> we're like, the, yeah, that's right. we're the Baskin Robbins of life. You know, <laughs> we have, a, you know, we have thousands of flavors. Uh, and yeah. America at its best is a country that has a set of shared values, which have, have eroded, I think, sadly, and they mm -hmm. can be rebuilt better locally than they can nationally. Mm -hmm. uh, a set of shared values that, that with a diverse population creates it's like a catalytic converter for a lot of good things happening. So I'm all into, well, I'm all into reconciliation. So I'm delighted to be with you guys. And I'm yeah. all into a bottom up approach to things. We talked about this beforehand. A lot of this is cultural. Our culture changes. People look at our politics 
and they go, man, I don't, it's ugly. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. yeah. And, and they kind of disassociate themselves from politics. Well, here's the dirty little secret. Our politics is a mirror image of our culture. It's a lagging indicator. It's not a leading indicator. It reflects our culture and our culture is more vulgar. It's, it's uglier. It, it is in fact based. It's not as loving and caring as it needs to be. And the good news is that cultural changes happen by from the bottom up. The last big cultural change was in the 60s. I don't think, and that's run out of gas. That's my generation's contribution to our country, and I'd say it was not a good one. Um, <laughs> but my expectation is that, that younger people are going to create the next cultural change. I'm heartened by, this may sound a little weird, I'm kind of a nerd about these things. When I think about things, I try to dig, or dig deeper. I'm heartened by the Second Great Awakening in our country. Mm-hmm. It was in the 18, 1830s, where uh, as a result of uh, men mostly migrating west to seek their fame and fortune, there was a breakdown of family life. Mm-hmm. Uh, small towns were you know, totally um, decimated by, by the fathers leaving. There was a lot of debauchery. Alcoholism rates were like astronomical. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a... The Second Great Awakening was sparked by Presbyterian ministers in Western New York on fire for the Lord that created a, a change in direction for the country. Yeah. Um, and the net result was it, it was the foundation for the abolitionist movement. It was a foundation for the prohibition movement, believe it or not, um, mm-hmm. that happened far later. The women's suffrage movement, the whole progressive agenda was spawned by this awakening that changed our culture, which meant we are, you know, our way of life and our politics changed as well. Yeah, that's my prayer. My hope and prayer is that we will have something similar. I'm not, I'm not sure how it plays out. I'm not smart enough to look into the future, mm-hmm. but it's going to happen at the local. It's going to happen in a bottom-up way, not top-down. That's so good, and I, it's it's interesting because of some of my buddies in leadership, whether in church domain or just other types of cultural domains. They they have a centerpiece in New York, so it's interesting that the Second Great Awakening, you know, came out of that area, and these guys are all in that area. And it's interesting because I'm hearing similarly to what you just said from them that that kind of awakening of cultural shift, they feel like they're seeing, you know, sparks of it and 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 some, some fruit and signs of it. And so that's hopeful. I hope that that is to come. And maybe maybe we'll see, as you said, the cycle mm-hmm. um, repeat. So, yeah. And, I, and I, I believe that it can happen. It should happen. You know, the reality is, like, b- building off what you just said, Jason, there are people who are having the conversation. There are people that are beginning to see, like, man, there's there's so much more that we can do. And, you know, Governor, I'm... I'm in that generation, you know, uh, that the, the younger generation, if you will, uh, that, you know, we're like, man, we, we can speak into things. We can, you know, seek to, uh, to be a part of that, you know, progressive movement of, you know, calling out what's not right, uh, speaking into, you know, issues of education and, and you know, reform as, as a whole. You know, we're, we're, the, we're next up, if, if you will. And, and I do believe, man, you put the right people in place. They are having the right conversations and it could happen. It, it, could, yeah. it could truly happen. Um, I totally agree. I, I think one of the keys to, keys to reconciliation, the keys to rejuvenation is reminding us 
we need to remind ourselves of what it is to be an American, what are our shared values. Mm. Warts and all, look, it, it, we're, not, we're, we're not a perfect nation, which is probably the best nation ever created under God's you know, <laughs> watchful eye here, but we've got a long way to go. We've got problems, but no we, doubt. it's impossible to fix things if we have a totally different set of values for one group and the other. And then the internet plays a pretty destructive role where, you know, you can create your own alternative set of facts. Come on, man. I mean, that's like, that, that's, that's kind of like uh, 1984 talk. Yeah. You know, we, we need to get beyond that. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget when I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been, I'm long gone out of politics, but when I was in politics, there were rewards for the Nixon to China moments. There were the rewards for finding someone who didn't look like me, who didn't agree with me on many things, but agreed with me on this thing to share the podium, basically to, to launch an initiative, to, to advocate. There were rewards for that. Now it's seldom done. Yeah. And that's because there's this big, deep divide. And if we're going to be, begin to fix problems, you have to assume that someone who disagrees with you isn't a, isn't a bad person. They just may be wrong on that particular subject. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're as patriotic as, as you are, man. Yeah. You don't get a sense of that when you're watching these conventions. No, yeah. not at all. Not at all. No, I appreciate you sharing that, Governor. Well, so you've, you've consistently, you've, you've pushed for higher educational standards coupled with, with greater choice. And obviously, this is our first time meeting each other, but my, my story actually includes the chance to be educated in a completely different environment than the one that I, that I grew up in, that I lived in. Can you talk about why you think providing for parents who, who might need to spend money for a better educational opportunity for their child is so significant, as well as you know, probably the, the best way to go about that? Well, first of all, you're, if you're empowering parents, you're, you're, you're effectively child-centered, student-centered rather than adult-centered you know, adult and focused mm-hmm. on a system. The this, this system is irrelevant to me. It's, can we make sure a child gets a year's worth of knowledge in a year's time and does so successively? Mm. Uh, and whether it's a, a private school, a not-for-profit a charter school, a public school choice option, or financial support for kids with learning disabilities, or the Florida virtual school that our friend Julie Young was the godmother of that had the, was the largest of its kind, still continues to provide quality education. Mm. All of those choices make all schools get better. That's mm. the, the beauty of this is, I guess in education where we kind of exempt common sense thinking, that would be very, that'd be totally easy to understand if, if you're in a setting where uh, you're, you're, you're finding, you're trying to buy a service or a product. If there's competition, the prices go down, the quality goes up. The mm-hmm. same applies in, in education. But we so focus on the economic interest of the adults, we kind of skip over that part. So yeah. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that Florida has, has the first, the second, the third statewide voucher programs. I'm, uh, I'm proud of the fact that we had the largest virtual school. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that there is a thriving homeschool community in Florida. I'm proud of the fact that we now have public school choice across district lines. I'm proud of the fact that we have a, we have a robust charter school offering. And here's, here's, the, here's the end result with accountability and empowering parents to have choices they otherwise wouldn't have, our low-income students are in the top five of the country. When I, was, when I started on our, our journey, 1998, 
Florida was 29th out of 31 states that, that administered the so-called NAEP test, Nation's Report Card. We whispered, I forgot which state was below us, but most people who whispered, thank God for Florida, because you know, we were 50th out of 50 on graduation rate. 50% of kids graduate from high school. My goodness. Yeah, then if you, the net result in 10 years' time was that we, went, we were 6th out of 50 in the fourth grade reading test 10 years later. Wow. African-American kids, Hispanic kids, kids with learning disabilities, low-income kids, all were in the top five. Yeah. Low-income Hispanic kids do better than the California average on the fourth grade reading test. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. it's not, I mean, our kids are, you know, living in Florida, of course, they're brilliant. I love my state, but they're not, I mean, every kid has the ability to do it. The system around them has to change to make sure that they can rise up. And uh, we, we have evidence on, on the path forward. But it is very political. People are threatened by these kind of changes because it challenges their their um, economic interests. Yeah. So so let's let's build off that then, Governor. Like, what what educational reform needs to actually happen in order to ensure that students from those more impoverished areas have access to these things, have access to STEM and to STEAM education, so that they can you know begin to imagine themselves in a job one day that otherwise they might not have imagined otherwise in the system that they're, they're in. Sure. Well, first, if you, you give parents power, particularly low-income pa- parents, the power to choose, they can choose a, a school that may not have this, uh, the STEM or STEAM programs that their, their kids, the, the, their neighborhood schools have. But the other thing that you can do is to say they should have it. Why do we assume that low-income kids shouldn't have access to high-quality education? It is, it, is the, it is the ultimate form of the soft bigotry of low expectations. Mm. So, I'm, as mm. I said, I'm kind of a nerd ball on, as it relates to data. I ask the following question. We grade schools A through F in Florida. Very controversial, apparently, but everybody knew an A is better than an F. <laughs> and we rewarded schools with extra money, $100 per kids, if they showed improvement. So I asked the following question. How many kids... In, in D and F high schools take uh, AP classes? How many take the practice SAT, which is the leading indicator of whether you're ready to go to college in, in 10th grade? 15% of kids took the practice SAT in the D and F schools, and 85% took them in the A and B schools. So what did we do? We paid for every kid <coughs> in the state in 10th grade to take the practice SAT yeah. as a state priority. I asked how many AP teachers are there in the DNF schools, and it was a fraction of what it was in the A and B schools. So what did we do? We created the first in the nation partnership with the college board where we train teachers and bonus them when, when their students pass the AP. And we've seen an explosion of low-income kids, triple-digit increases taking and passing the AP classes. You can't wow. just sit on the sidelines and talk about it or excuse it away, there's a growing mm-hmm. trend now just to say, look, life's not fair, and there are, there's systemic things that we can't overcome. Mm-hmm. We have to accept it. And I reject that out of hand because Good. that dooms the possibilities of people being able to rise up and to be successful. We have to have lofty expectations for everyone and then have the resources to back it up. Man, that's good. People think that I'm trying to destroy public education. And what I see are huge swaths of our society being limited in their potential. And it breaks my heart. And people should be marching in the streets about this. I'm really excited when, and I'm a huge NDA. I love the bubble. 
Oh, it's, it's been it's been so great, Governor. My goodness. They actually win this thing. They're they're phenomenal. Surprisingly. So, so I love the fact that they. Uh, for, for, I don't know how this happened, but they have education reform as one of the twenty different things you can put on the back of your jersey. Mm-hmm. There are quite a few of the players that that have that have a heart for this and yes. are saying we need to have education reform, and I'm totally with them. Yeah, that's awesome. So, how do we how do we whisper to our our state officials like hey these are things that we need to think about and not only that it's like we've got the the data you know the stats here you know in in a particular state that we can we can point to well there's there's good things going on the state that has had the greatest gains in learning on this nation's report card in the last uh, four years is Mississippi okay raised hmm. many of the the early childhood reading initiatives that, that we mm-hmm. believe are important, ending social promotion, empowering low-income families for more choices. Mississippi's had some lights-out progress. Yeah. So it can happen for sure. I think we had, somehow we got to take it out of the political realm and make this uh, a justice issue that yeah. is powerful and yeah. where you could imagine people on the left and the right coming together and say, okay, the adults have had their way here for a long while. Maybe we should focus on Mm-hmm. How do we make sure teachers are trained and how do we empower parents to help make sure children learn? Yeah. Yeah. And you, and that, that speaks to what you were saying earlier, right? Well, first off, it, I, I agree. It, we should see this as a justice, not, not political. Yes. But then it goes to what you were saying earlier, like, man, we could be on two different sides of the spectrum, but have the thing that we agree on and, and work towards that end. The next generation that that's coming up man, let's, let's come alongside to see them get to a spot <clears throat> where they can excel, where they can maybe go back into the areas uh, where they're coming from and, and show and, you know, seek change in their community that, you know, they may not have had when they were coming up, right? Well, here's an interesting, interesting fact now based on 20 years of experience. There's now a constituency for parental choice for empowering parents. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to imagine that someone's going to come in and a new governor, new legislature, come and take it away. The, uh, the programs that I described to you disproportionately help low-income communities, but they also disproportionately help Hispanic and African-American churches mm-hmm. because you have universal pre-K in Florida. You have the corporate tax scholarship program for low-income kids. We now have a, a, a voucher program for kids with learning disabilities. And many of these students, their parents are choosing their church as the source of learning. And so apart from the fact that it's the right thing to do and it makes all schools get better, it also has strengthened important institutions in our, throughout our communities. Yeah. I think that's an added benefit that's not talked about much. But because of that, there's now a growing constituency in the legislature and certainly outside politically. Don't take this stuff away, man. This is this is important for for my family and for my community. It's so good. And I, I two things. One that the second one will lead to the next question. But the first one is here in Tennessee. A friend of mine, his name's William, leads a group in Jackson, Tennessee, and, and that provides basically technology catalytic after school training for high school students. And they've done it so well now. Two years ago, I think it was two years ago, they had one student who didn't even plan on going to college. But because that person, he went through the training program, 
reimagined his future thinking he might could have a technology job and got a van, a full scholarship to Vanderbilt to study that. And yeah. then another student the next year, same thing. She had never imagined going even to college, much less like outside of West Tennessee, but much less to study for a technology job. And that student ended up getting a full scholarship to Howard to study that. And so, you know, it's it, it's great stories, like you're saying, when when justice, politics, policy making, education, choice, empowering families, when it all comes together, you start seeing those kind of incredible stories result. And 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 I love that. I love that. That and that leads to this next question. But I'll pause because you may want to comment on that. What I just said. I mean, the skills gap in our country is one of the great opportunities to deal with the economic justice issues that we're facing. I mean, there's a positive agenda that would be embraced by a lot of people if we focused on education attainment. And then, you know, the, the, the aspiration ought to be that every child garners a high school diploma. That is means that you actually are college ready and or career ready. Career. Yeah. It ought to be both. And we don't we don't come close to doing that. Sixty um, percent of all entering freshmen in our community college system have to retake high school reading and high school math. Increasing numbers of kids going to our public universities, our four year universities, have have are you know required to take remediation. Our graduation rate has gone every year way up. Uh, it's like 86, 87 percent right now, but. It's really not a it's not a valuable piece of paper if you're not college ready and or career ready. So if look, let me put it this way. If you were starting from scratch, this is a great way to think about things. The, the work you're doing in reconciliation certainly would apply to this and anything else. Really, if you started with the question, if we weren't doing it this way, how would we do it? Yeah, hmm. we wouldn't have the system we have today. No, it would, be, it would have a, it would have a immersed in our learning. First of all, you would make sure the kids are Four-year-olds are taking are beginning the journey of learning, not not waiting till kindergarten, and then make it literacy based, and have a gate at the end of third grade that says, "This kid is a grade level reader," mm-hmm. and make sure you put all the resources necessary to make that happen. That's, without that, it's hard to imagine any of the other things happening. But the end of the journey in high school, there should be more career focus to it. Kids need to be motivated. Mm-hmm. They need to, they love they can learn around the things they love doing a lot easier. Right the things they don't. And we should have a flourishing education system with a greater focus on credentials and a focus on making sure our higher education is really meaningful for these kids. I mean, I just read that Google is offering, is creating, they have a certificate program that offers, without having to get a college degree, they're, they're hiring people that pass this uh, credential program that takes three months, I think, or two months. Mm-hmm. At, a fraction of the cost to go to college yeah. and they're offering them jobs at $90,000 a year. Wow. You know, put me in. I'm ready. Seriously. Where, how can <laughs> I sign <laughs> up? <laughs> you know, so it, we, we're, our systems need to reflect the world we're in. Mm-hmm. You know, the 21st century is different than the early not 20, you know, 1900s when things weren't moving at warp speed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for and for someone like you with the diverse background you have in various you know avenues of politics and education and things in the economy, I mean, you, you understand how it all works together. And I mean, for that change to happen, right? Like, 
we've got to better understand how policy making could potentially change it. And then it does come back to actually being kind enough to each other to have policy making discussions. But when it comes to civics, when it comes to the government, you, you've always been an advocate of, of a more robust focus on educating high schoolers to understand how all that works. Talk about why that matters in the midst of this current political climate. Well, it matters a lot. It passed this prologue, right? I mean, if you don't have a sense of your history, you're going to repeat the mistakes. And in that shared identity that's necessary, look, right now, our political system is like that. Mm-hmm. Push, push your opponent down, make yourself look better on both sides. And the gap, the gulf between the two um, is impossible to overcome. That's mm-hmm. more of a, that, that contagion is more of a D.C. national political problem. But it, it's infecting a lot of politics across the country as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why I think the bottom-up approach is better. But we have to have a common understanding of our democracy, you know, the numbers, I was a professor at Penn until recently, I was a professor of practice, which meant I got to go on campus and speak to students um, as a conservative. You know, they don't get to talk to conservatives, apparently. So I was, yeah. I was a total conservative <laughs> on campus. I loved it. The kids were brilliant, really engaging time there. But the Annenberg Foundation, uh, Annenberg School of Journalism is there, and they do an annual survey of what, what people know in our country about our history mm-hmm. about our constitution it's it's just downright scary because people can't name a branch of the government or they can't name a member of the supreme court they don't know how many members of the supreme court there are on and on it goes and so i look i think the the constitution was a first of all it was a it, it was it was a reconciliation in that mm-hmm. it was a massive compromise. Mm-hmm. People yeah. had to put aside a lot of differences in order to find common ground, and they did. And it protects us. It assumes that we're a self-governing people because the, the Bill of Rights particularly protects us from an overbearing government. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Rather than guarantees rights, it's a, it's a totally different system than existed before. And understanding that and understanding how it, it, you know, our society can change, but those fundamentals can be the foundation for the 20th century, the 21st century. I think it's hugely important. I was the chairman of the National Constitution Center and, and fell in love again with the Constitution. It's a phenomenal document and it's it's our blueprint. But if you know it's like it's like telling a 16-year-old kid, you know, it's okay to have a bottle of bourbon and keys to the Maserati, even though you don't know how to rock drive. <laughs> you know, what good does a blueprint do if you don't know anything about it you don't know how to drive but we're letting you go do it i mean it's yeah, yeah. we we need to re-engage and hopefully again the next generation will understand this importance the other thing i'd say is that it gives you a path forward when you understand the challenges the fights how we came together how we were split apart how how we've dealt with slavery its impact on it. all these things are really end up making our dna as a nation Mm-hmm. You know, we're a nation of immigrants. These things need to be repeated to, to people and understood. Not all great, some really damaging things for our society. We should have a conversation about it at least. Yeah. But yeah. if you don't have a set of facts uh, from which to deal with it, how can you talk about it? Yeah. 
That's good. That's good. Well, to, well, to build on that. So, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had Justin Gibney on. Uh, he's overseeing president of, of uh, the Ann campaign. And he and he said that, you know, our, our two party system, it, it seems to be to be crumbling. And he actually argues that party system was was never the original intention for our country. And as as young leaders are being educated in civics and government, what what do you imagine this might inspire them to do to cultivate for more collab more collaborative, effective political structure for the 21st century America? Yeah, the party system. It's kind of interesting that it survived. I'm, I'm <laughs> actually I'm a little surprised to be honest with you. And now it's it's hollow. It, it's mm. you know it's a convergence of many special interests. There's not a one organizing principle what it is to be a Democrat or one organizing principle to be a Republican. Mm-hmm. And it's not endowed in our Constitution. It's it's exists. It, it had a useful purpose. But if if, if people self-identify in these groups, and that means that the other group is the enemy, mm-hmm. it's just a form. It's just another form of of bad news. Yeah. So yeah. so what. You know, look, my experience in politics is there were, let me put it this way, you know, a good year, uh, we'd have 200 bills pass the legislature every year. Mm-hmm. I always wanted about 100. I didn't, I didn't, people didn't, shouldn't feel compelled to pass a law every time something happens. Right. <laughs> but we, you know, a lot of times they, people, they're, they're there for 90 days. They've they got to do things. So they, 100, 190 to 200 bills. And 90% of them, were unanimous votes. Mm-hmm. So the 10% where the fight exists, they could find common ground. Yeah. The budget has to pass in every state. It requires a balanced budget. You have to mm-hmm. find common ground. Restoring that in Washington would be so helpful, irrespective yeah. of the hyper-partisanship. You know, the, the rule ought to be, look, when you agree, stop fighting. <laughs> let's do this, let's do the let's do the parts where we agree first. Yeah. Then, okay, after we do that, maybe we'll find another one and another yeah. one. And pause, reflect on that, learn to learn to understand the, the, the other person, have dinner with them, you know. Yeah. We get back to that. That'd be nice. Know who their families are, their background, connect sure. on a human level, and you'd be surprised that you keep finding things that you have common ground with people. Yeah, if you skip good. over all that, man, I mean, I, I, I bet you, well, my dad was a congressman. His best friends were, I don't even, you know, he didn't care if they were a Democrat or Republican. He had deep friendships with his, his colleagues and their families were very close. Today, it's very seldom you see Republicans and Democrats actually even socially getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I remember uh, <clears throat> my uh, it was either my my grandmother or my uh, history teacher in in high school said that. Where it's like you'd be surprised that you know behind the scenes how much of, of actual friendships that you saw that does not exist here today. I, I remember hearing that when I was younger, and I was like, well, you know, now that I'm older, how do we get back to that point, right? <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm 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 not a huge fan of Joe Biden's uh, views on you know world views, but mm-hmm. he's old school in that regard. Yeah. Whenever the government shutdown between the Republicans in Congress and President Obama, like once a year, it seemed like they were about ready to shut down everything. Mm-hmm. I always felt like you know Biden going to the Capitol, spending ten minutes with Mitch McConnell, they cut a deal and be done. Yeah, yeah. 
be and nice. That's the old school way of doing things. And maybe talking about reconciliation, we'll see. I mean, we're in this hyper-partisan world. He, he might not do that, but, but if he's elected president, that could be, that would be an important thing. Yeah. Just, yeah. there's some symbolic things that we could do. Public leaders need to lead. Yeah, that's good. Let that's people, good uh, you know, if you have a bottom-up approach where people are tired of all this, mm-hmm. and you have examples of leadership that is focused on coming together rather than, you know, finding common ground rather than pushing one down to make yourself look better. I mean, yeah. the stuff that goes on in politics, I, I used to get spanked by my mother. <laughs> like that when I was a kid. Uh, for real. For real. It's, you know, you, the, the, the crap that we allow to happen is yeah. family life, you know, you, I'm sure we all have that in common. You, you're learning these habits. Yeah. And then you see that people on the national stage basically abandon all the things that we were talking about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Uh, <laughs> well, what you said a while ago, I think, I think is so important talking about the blueprint of the constitution, you know, there's a difference in holding to ideals and holding to ideas. Mm. Right. And, and that, to me, that's the heartbeat of understanding the blueprint of the constitution. It's why, it's why we can even have a reconciliation conversation because we can be honest about the ideal of all men are created equal, but we can be also confessional and honest about where that has not played itself out right and and the destructiveness of that and and so in in that sense right like like that that piece of it is super important and 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 that and this this next question plays into that with regard to the achievement gap and there's a quote here and so i'm going to read it you've been quoted as saying the NAEP results indicate that African-American and Hispanic students are reading two grade levels behind their white peers. And you've already mentioned this. That gap is reflective of a socioeconomic divide when it comes to education, and it's intolerable on a number of levels, morally, socially, economically, end quote. I, I, total, total honest, I teared up. When I was researching for these questions, I teared up when I read that quote of yours. I had not ever read that quote of yours. And it, being someone in Florida, I was I, I followed you. I, I paid attention to what you did and, and appreciated it. I teared up when I read that. And I'm just curious, how do you encourage us in this effort to get that gap eliminated? How do we, and, and, and not only that, Talk about what needs to happen to eliminate it, but help us put that in the context of the reconciliation conversation as to why that would be so important. Yeah. So I'm reluctant. I, I said that, so I'm, I'm not taking it back for sure. <laughs> uh, but it's easy to fall into a trap of saying um, Hispanic and African-American kids um, achieved less when in mm-hmm. fact, it's, it's as much to do of class, of mm-hmm. levels of income, right. of family, of family structure, than, than it is of race or ethnicity. Right. Yeah. There are thriving. In fact, you know, the, it's, it, the trap is that uh, African-American middle class is, has grown significantly in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Not every African-American is poor. Not every Hispanic is poor. So right. I, I wanted to put a footnote into this just to suggest sure, sure. That this, this has to do with low-income 
families more to me. That's the important fo focus. So how do we how do we deal with it? Well, there's lots of policy things that need to be done. One, you put more money in the schools that are that are taking care of lower income families. Mm -hmm. Title One does that, but states ought to have a funding formula that's based on equity as well. Mm -hmm. um, you have a collective bargaining process that doesn't take all of the higher paid teachers out of the low income communities to go to the more affluent communities. You require basically school-based budgeting so that you have a mix of higher paid teachers with beginning teachers. You expand opportunities as, as I suggested with AP classes. You create, universities need to create partnerships with the, uh, with the urban, the big urban core high schools. Mm -hmm. to be able to mentor. Uh, you yeah. create scholarships for first-in-generation, first-to-go-to-college, first-generation students. Create, it doesn't have to be race-based, but if you're first-time, first in your family to go to college, there should be additional financial support because we know the struggles. Of, yeah. of, uh, mm. of, there's, there's a whole suite of reforms that I think are necessary to deal with this inequality that is real. Yeah. And, um, and then I would say trust parents. You know, I, there's a, I tell the story of Denisha Merriweather, who's a friend of mine now. She was, she was in, gosh, she was in third grade. She, it was a, she lives in, lived in Jacksonville. She had a very tough, she was growing grow up in a really tough circumstance. She flunked third grade twice mm -hmm. and basically was a, this beautiful child that was lost. I mean, there, can you imagine the struggle? Of, of inadequacy, feeling like you, you, know, you weren't capable of doing things. And her grandmother found out about the corporate tax scholarship program and sent her to a smaller Baptist school in her neighborhood. And she, she got those years back and she, was, she graduated from high school and she was the first in her family to graduate from college and just most recently got a master's of social work at the University of South Florida, and now is working wow. in Washington advocating for parental choice. Wow. wow! Had she not had that choice, she would have not been the yeah. success that she has. And so if you assume that, that, look, back to the very beginning, that this isn't about us. This is, every child has unique God-given abilities. Mm -hmm. And it's up to us to organize ourselves around them for the best means by which they can reach that full potential. In not every case are they going to go to a traditional school. Yeah. What yeah. you need to do is to have equitable funding for these options and empower parents to make these choices and have high lofty expectations for every child. Not not one group, one set of expectations for one group and another another one for uh, another group. That is that's what you call racism. Mm. You know, that's what mm. you call systemic problems yeah. when you when you have one expectation that is lower for those that need to have uh, more attention given to them. I'm ranting here, but I apologize. No, no. Oh, you're good. Have, there are school districts in this country when the pandemic hit that said, if we can't educate everybody, we're not going to educate anybody. Anybody. Mm -hmm. Oh, come on, man. That is like the, first of all, it is deeply pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And rather than, you know, have a bias towards action, they did the exact opposite. And who are the yeah. people, that, who are the kids that, that are hurt by that? The kids that don't have access to the internet, the kids yep. that don't have any ability to, to interact with their teachers. The digital divide is another example of a systemic problem in our country. If you have right. low income right. or just, or live in a rural area, you're disproportionately 
lacking in a device and lacking yeah. in, in the internet. Well, instead of saying life's not fair, a great nation rolls up their sleeves together, all of us, and says, we're going to eliminate this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Every child should have the ability to learn at home just as they yeah. can learn in school. And you yep. know, Governor, so I actually heard of some areas, this wasn't you know, obviously nationwide, but I heard of some areas, you know, where uh, companies provided internet to houses. It, it was either free of charge or lower than, you know, their, their base package or whatever. Yeah. And to me, it's like my, my wife and I kind of looked at each other. It was like, "Oh, it's doable. We, people can we we can make this happen." But it's just a matter of seeing the need and responding to it, not you know looking yeah. to you know grease grease the pockets. So you think about it. Um, there are many districts now that are putting in their school buses Wi-Fi mm -hmm. and going into the communities and allowing kids to download. And then, as you said, much there's a lot of uh, philanthropy giving out devices. Mm -hmm. So a child could go at a certain period of time, 9.30 in the morning, download their work, mm -hmm. uh, upload their assignments, go back to home and, and work on it in the afternoon, go back and do the exact same thing yeah. and, get a, and get a meal. Yeah. Yep. Which is the other part of this. So there it's are big, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, there were school districts that basically surrendered mm -hmm. their duties, their obligations. And then we had Elon Musk launching a rocket you know, the coolest looking rocket in the world uh, into uh, to the space station. Which yeah. America do you want? Do you want the guy that is like a little bit crazy, but he's just ingenious and yeah. <laughs> thinks big and acts on it and, you know, as crazy as he might be? Yeah, that is America. That's the kind of America that we need to get back to, not the defeatist. Oh, you know, you can't do it. So we're just, you know, God dang, this is so important. The loss of learning, yeah. for, particularly for low income kids, you can't replace it. No. Yeah. It's not coming That's back. That's a big deal. It's not. The gaps right. will go away. Trust me, there'll be, there'll be people saying it's unfair to, to have testing mm -hmm. at the end of the school year. And if you don't test, you don't measure, you really are expressing a lack of care for whether that child's successful or not. You eliminate yeah. accountability. For particularly for struggling um, students, you're dooming them. Yeah, yeah, man, that's that's good thought. That's good. That's good. Well, Governor, we uh, we want to protect your time. So so as we wrap up, what action steps would you encourage our listeners to take to be the most so they could effectively participate in educational reform in a reconciling and transformative way? I'd, I'd say first and foremost, if they're if their parents, make sure their children. Make sure you know what the options are for, that are best for your child. Be engaged, be informed. Sometimes that's easy to do. Sometimes it's hard. But it's, you know, be passionate. Be the passionate defender of your child's education. Be involved yeah. in your school. There's lots of ways to do that. You get great insights on who the great teachers are, the mm -hmm. ones that aren't so great. Yep. And then tell your legislators that this should not be a hyper-partisan issue. It's not about labor unions versus management. It's about making sure every kid has a, has a fighting chance by getting a high-quality education. So those would be the ways to do it. And, and rather than complain about it, act on your beliefs. Yeah. Act, yeah. I mean, That's ultimately, good. the country is going to thrive if we all have a bias towards action rather than the opposite. Yeah. Mm. That's good. That's good. good. Well, we appreciate your time, Governor Bush. And uh, as always, we try to let our people know how they can they can follow our our, our guests. Uh, so we know you're on social media at Jeb Bush. You also have a website, uh, Jeb.org. 
You also have uh, a web, another website that you have been a part of as well, excelined.org. Governor Bush, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much for Thank joining us on the Reconciliation Conversation. Yes, sir. And for go our heat. listeners, yeah, go, go Heat. Uh, <laughs> go Heat. And unless they meet LeBron and then go Bron. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had LeBron. It was a good is run. It, is it, it was a good run, yeah. Is it too early to say go Warriors? Like, can I get back on that? <laughs> you know, I'm year. ready for December 1st is what I'm ready for. You got for. the second round draft pick. Uh, second, yeah, yeah. second pick in the draft, which doesn't seem fair. It, it does not. It does not. And and as a Knicks fan, seeing that they dropped, uh, they I think they got like the eighth pick or something. I was like, come on, this is <laughs> this is trash. But uh, again, we want to thank you, Governor, and, and thank you for our listeners. Thank you for joining in on the reconciliation conversation. Remember, you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Recon Combo. You can also stay connected with us through our website, reconciliationconversation.com, or feel free to subscribe to our YouTube channel under No More Night Media. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time.